This morning we have the privilege of beginning a new series um, in the book of James. James is a book that is immensely practical. It's uh, very much a rubber-meets-the-road kind of book. It's a short book, only 108 verses in five chapters. If you were to sit down this afternoon, and I would love it if you would do this, sit down this afternoon and read it straight through, it will only take you probably 10 to 15 minutes. It deals with a variety of subjects in the Christian life. In fact, its variety is so great that commentators kind of struggle to outline it. Um, And you read through it and it deals with, with one thing and then another. It kind of bounces back and forth between issues. And these issues that it deals with help us to shape our thinking and our actions as Christians. It's a lot like the Old Testament book of Proverbs in that it helps us understand in practical ways how we ought to live as children of God in the world. James deals with testing and trials, asking for wisdom, the fleeting nature of riches, the nature of temptations, guarding our speech, being doers of the word, and bridling our tongue. And that's just the first chapter. Because this book is so practical, I've entitled the series, James, A Faith That Works. James, A Faith That Works, in that it it works for us, it helps us in our life, but it's also an allusion to what James may be most known for, and that is the fact that it deals with works in such a way in relation to faith um, that some people see it in opposition to Paul's teaching. Because in James 2.24 it says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And um, some people make the mistake that say, oh, well, Scripture contradicts itself because James is in opposition to what Paul says. But we know that Scripture is divinely inspired and working in and through every human author of Scripture is the Holy Spirit guiding and directing those words so that every word is inspired by God. Scripture does not contradict itself. James is writing to correct one error and Paul is writing to address another They're not at odds, and we'll deal with that more fully when we get to that passage. But just to uh, whet your appetite a little bit and to allow you to think about this, here's a quote from um, one commentator. He says, To Paul the question was, how is salvation experienced? And the answer to that, of course, is by faith alone. To James the question was, how is this true and saving faith recognized? And the answer is, by its fruits. Real faith results in good deeds or, or good works. These good deeds do not earn our salvation. James recognizes that as well. Yet, good works should be present and are evidence of true faith. James helps us see what true faith looks like. It's not only practical, it's also very pastoral, this book. James recognizes that we live in a culture that is hostile to us as believers. He reminds us that trials are part of our existence in this life. He knows that Satan will continually tempt us. He helps us go to the heart of the matter and shows how that sinful actions are the results of sinful desires in our hearts. He exposes our bias and our prejudices. He recognizes that our tongue gets us into trouble quite often. He admonishes us to patience and prayer. Also, the book of James is very penetrating As I said a minute ago, he goes for our hearts. And he does it in a way that makes it easy for us to identify with it. 
He's the master of the hypothetical question. He asks things like, suppose a man comes into your meeting as he deals with the sin of partiality. He says in another place, now listen, you who say, as he deals with those who may boast about tomorrow. He allows us to easily see ourselves in his admonition. It's very easy to see ourselves in the text. And lastly, and this is just my introduction, by the way, James can be very pointed. He can be very direct in his imperatives. For the length of the book, there's more imperatives in this text than in any other book. Don't be shocked when in chapter 4 he calls his readers adulteresses. At times he sounds like a thundering prophet of the Old Testament. But he speaks in a language to grab our attention and to make the point that we can never consider ourselves. In that text, he says, don't ever consider yourself a friend of the world in that you partake of, their, of the things that they desire and the, and the sinful actions in which they partake. He does this to expose the idolatry of our hearts and to call us to repentance and call us to single-minded devotion to God. And now we'll read this brief text. But before we do, let us pray and ask God's blessing upon our time this morning. Lord God, we bow before you, rejoicing that you are here with us and rejoicing in the privilege we have to sit under the authority and teaching of your word, Lord, we ask. And as your word has been divinely inspired, may your Holy Spirit illumine it to our minds and to our hearts this morning. Lord, may it be quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May it cut to the heart and remove the sin and dross from our heart and from our lives, we pray. And may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If you haven't already turned to James, you can, or you can just look at the single verse we're going to read in your worship guide this morning. James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word this morning. In this brief salutation, we learn the essentials of this letter. We learn who wrote it and to whom it is addressed, who it's from and who it's to, kind of like the tag on a Christmas present, who it's from and who it's to. Now, if, if you're like a lot of children... When you open presents on Christmas morning, you like to dive right in, don't you, children? You like to see what's inside that wrapping paper. And sometimes your mother might ask you to say, well, who's it from? And you might have to kind of sheepishly look through the pile of, of wrapping paper and say, oh, well, it's from Grandma. And, and your mother will say, well, make sure you tell Grandmother thank you. But we don't want to ignore the essentials here, who it's from and who it's to. Because in this salutation, we see that James, the humble servant of Christ, gives hope to the church of Christ by pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ as they journey through the wilderness. And in that thesis statement, we have the outline of of our message this morning. We see the humility of the servant of Christ. We see the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the unity of the church of Christ. The first thing that we notice in this text is the way that James introduces himself. He begins by stating his name, as was customary for letters of this time. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He introduces himself as a servant. 
But just who is this James that so humbly states his name without giving us any other reference to who he is? Well, we might first think of James, the son of Zebedee, one of the disciples, the brother of John, the beloved disciple. But history tells us that he was martyred in about A.D. 44. We read about his death in Acts 2.12. And because of the subject matter of this book, it's unlikely that it was written that early. Scholars think it was written in the mid to late 40s. It could have also been written by James, the son of Alphaeus. But again, he was not well known. But there's evidence within the text that helps us point to another James. And that James was the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's also called James the Just. He was an influential leader in the early church. And he was one whom Paul called an apostle in Galatians. He helped to preside over the first church council, or as we Presbyterians like to say, the first general assembly in Acts 15. There are significant parallels between the words recorded by Luke in the book of Acts and the way James states things in our texts. So scholars think that it was very likely the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ was the author of this book. And that's why we say he was an unlikely servant. Because if you remember, if you've been with us on Sunday evenings as we've journeyed through, um, begun our journey through the gospel of Mark you know that Jesus' own family was hostile towards his teaching and towards who he was. They even thought he was crazy. And we read in, in another gospel, in John 7, that not even his brothers believed in him. James initially rejected his brother, Jesus Christ. But now he calls himself a servant he doesn't even lay claim to the fact that he is the Lord's brother. And if you, when we go through James, you'll see he, he loves that word brother. He, he uses that term a lot, yet he doesn't use it in this opening text. He's content to be called a servant. The Greek word is also translated as slave in some places. And I think James would be just as perfectly content with that interpretation as well. But we know that he had to go undergo a change. He had a change of heart and a change in affection. Now, the word affection is a word we don't hear very much in our day and time. But I think we need to bring it back because it has to do with our heart and what we set our heart upon. It has to do with our love, what we desire. Webster's Old Dictionary describes affection like this. A bent of mind towards a particular object holding a middle place between disposition, which is natural, and passion, which is excited by the presence of its exciting object. James had a change of affections in that his own reputation that he once held so dear because he was looking kind of with scorn upon Jesus and his teaching, we read in the Gospels. But God changed his heart and changed his affection. And now he's only concerned with serving his Savior and Lord and helping others to do the same. So this message of humility is beautifully illustrated in the author of James. The humility that marks the servants of Christ is also reflected in the text of James. We'll see as we go along. James deals with humility explicitly in chapter 4. He says that God gives grace to the humble. He says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And even when he's not dealing with it 
in those terms, it's kind of a theme that's behind the whole book. And it really should be behind all of our actions as believers as well. James reminds us in, in chapter 118 that our salvation is all of grace. Only by the will of God are we brought into saving relationship with Him. His message is the same as Paul's. Not of works, lest any of us should boast. We are rightly humbled as we recognize that our salvation is all of grace. Our lives should echo the words of the hymn, Upon the cross of Jesus, mine eye at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears, two wonders I confess, the wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. God's grace in Christ should humble us. We see that in the author. We see that in the text. And that should be reflected in the lives of every believer. Our humility should come from our recognition that we are owned by another. Just as James recognized that he was a servant or slave in a sense owned by his master, Jesus, we too must know the same. We are owned by God because he has created us. He has made us. We are his, it says in Psalm 100. If you were with us at VBS, I hope those words are familiar to you as we reflect upon God's ownership of us. He has every right to us from creation. But if you are in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ this morning, he has a double claim to you because he has redeemed you. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6 that we are bought with a price. We are not our own. We are God's. Therefore, we should glorify God in our bodies, which are His. Because this redemption is not based upon anything we can do, we owe everything to Him. We recognize Christ as Lord and Master. James tells us again in chapter 1 that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Nothing originates with us. This This should feed our humility is really what it should do as we recognize that everything comes from Him. Of course, to have a humble heart, we must first have a new heart that comes from coming into relationship with Jesus Christ, confessing our sins and trusting in Christ alone. And when we do that, we should have a new affection as well. Remember we said about, what we said about affection? It's what we love. It's what we're passionate about, what we get excited about. We need a new affection that will replace our old affections. One commentator wrote about this and said, Every sin is rooted in the inordinate lust for something which comes because we are trusting in that thing rather than in Christ for our righteousness or salvation. He goes on, We sin because we are looking to something else to give us what only Jesus can give. Beneath any particular sin is the general sin of rejecting Christ's salvation and attempting our own self-salvation. It reminds me of the famous sermon by Thomas Chalmers where he said, The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. Now those words, affection and expulsive, are not common in our vernacular. But I think we need to bring them back. Because we need a new affection a new excitement about our Savior. And we need that excitement to expel our old affections for sin. 
as I was thinking about this, I thought about how could this be illustrated? And I thought, well, this is kind of a silly illustration, but I think it shows how that an, a new affection can expel an old one. Because when we lived in, in Kansas, they had uh, gas stations called Quick Trip. And Quick Trip is a great place. They have inexpensive gas. You can get coffee. You can get donuts. And they have a roller grill that's got hot dogs and sausages and taquitos. I mean, it's just a great place to go. So when we moved to Mississippi and we were there five years, there was no Quick Trip. And so we just, every once in a while, would bemoan the fact that we couldn't have our beloved gas station convenient mart. And now we move to Texas. But Texas has something that Kansas doesn't have. They have Bucky's. And at Bucky's, what are they doing? They're chopping up whole briskets and making sandwiches before your very eyes. And they've got fudge and roasted nuts and kolaches and beef jerky. I could go on and on. But the point is, is I have a new affection. And if there was a quick trip sitting beside Bucky's, I'd probably drive past it every time because of the expulsive power of a new affection. And James knew that. James had experienced the expulsive power of a new affection. And it was an affection that humbled him before his Lord and his Master. Secondly, we see in this text the the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider the text where he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek here could also read, a servant of Jesus Christ who is God and Lord. Very, it, it could also be interpreted that. And, and translators, they, they probably talk for hours about these things. But even if, we don't, even if it's not translated like that, we have much evidence from the rest of Scripture that Jesus is God. We see here that he has equal honor with God the Father. And James uses all three of Christ's titles, Lord, Jesus, and Christ. You know well that Lord is is a title of respect or honor, but in, in Scripture it's used to note God's majesty and his rule over creation. The Old Testament translates the Hebrew word Yahweh as Lord to remind us of God's covenant name and his sovereign rule Overall, remember Thomas, doubting Thomas, when he heard of Christ's resurrection. He said, I won't believe unless I can put my finger into the nail prints and thrust my hand into his side. And when he saw Jesus, he said, my Lord and my God. He recognized that Jesus was alive and that he was God. And it seems that James here has some of that same sense as he recognizes that Christ is the Lord God. James, throughout the text, uses the term Lord for both God and Jesus. And James' teaching echoes Christ's teaching. We see many parallels between Christ's teaching, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, and the material that James deals with in his text. He recognizes that Jesus is God. Secondly, he uses the name Jesus, which points to his humanity in some ways, and it means Savior, It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew Joshua, which means Jehovah saves. Jesus is the Savior under the new covenant. And it beautifully illustrates the promise to Mary as the angel announced Christ's birth when he said, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. John Blanchard said of this text, The most stupendous truth the world has ever heard is locked into that one passage of Scripture because it forges an unbreakable link between Bethlehem and Calvary. 
Jesus came to save. Christ, of course, means anointed one or Messiah. In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were all anointed for their official duties, and Christ fulfills all of those offices. He is the ultimate fulfillment of those, and the one promised in the Old Testament who would be the suffering servant that we see in Isaiah. One preacher that I read pointed out that James, the brother of our Lord, Lord would have likely shared the same bed with Christ as a child. And if the one who grew up with Jesus played with him as a child, ate around the same table, and probably slept in the same bed with Jesus, would recognize him as Lord and God, certainly we should as well. Finally, we want to consider the recipients of this letter. It is written to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, the text says. At first glance, this sounds like it might be an Old Testament book, to the twelve tribes that, that we know uh, the way that, that the people of Israel, the children of Israel, were um, identified in the Old Testament. But this is very much a New Testament book, not just because of where it's located in our Bibles, but because that we see that James is pointing to Christ and his accomplished work. He is addressing believers who embrace Christ in the same way. So why this reference to the 12 tribes? Well, I've titled this last point, the unity of the church of Christ. And certainly we want to pray for the unity of the church. But what I want us to see is that there's a continuous line between the people of God under the old covenant and the people of God in the new covenant, you and, including you and me. The 12 tribes were based upon the 12 sons of Jacob, or, or Israel as his name became. These formed the leaderships and the divisions of the people of God in the Old Testament. But it was not mere coincidence that Jesus chose 12 disciples to be his inmost circle. And he says in Matthew that they would sit on 12 thrones ruling the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 apostles were the ones that established the New Testament church. Just as Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament sacrificial practices and system, the church that he established through the apostles is the fulfillment of his plan for a chosen people, gathered to him under the new covenant and sealed to him by his blood. The new covenant people of God are indeed children of Abraham. Genesis 3, or I'm sorry, Galatians 3, 7 tells us that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Inclusion in the people of God is not based upon birth or strict adherence to the Mosaic law. No, in fact, Paul tells us that it's always been by faith. How were the people under the old covenant saved? By faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is even so bold as to say that we are the Israel of God in Galatians 6. I think of the Old Testament and I think about that it, it is, it's, it's kind of like a flower, that's in its bud stage. You know that flower is going to bloom, but you don't see exactly what that flower is going to look like. So the Old Testament believers had faith in Christ, even though they couldn't see the full bloom of it that we enjoy. In the New Testament, we see the full bloom of God's plan of salvation and the establishment of His people. The parallels that I'm talking about are even more closely drawn in 1 Peter 1, where he associates the scattered exiles directly with those who are saved in Jesus Christ. We are Israel. We are the people of God. 
The author's use of this Old Testament imagery shows his hope that the scattered people of God from of old are now being gathered under their new and rightly appointed king, Jesus the Messiah. This term, dispersion, as it is in our text, may need some explanation, or in some parts of the South, some splaining to do on it. The King James translates this as the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad. This is helpful as it reminds the, the readers of James that they are a people that have been scattered. Just last week, we finished the study in Nahum, where we talked about Assyria, who was, who was um, destroyed for their wicked deeds. But we also talked about how they had dispersed the people of God. The northern ten tribes were led into exile and, and basically obliterated as a people. And so that should come to the minds of the readers of James here as they talk about the 12 tribes in the dispersion. A similar thing happened later to the tribe of Judah. Um, Babylon did that to them in 586 or 87. And so these things should, those images should be in our minds as they probably were in the readers, the original readers of James. Also, we should be reminded of the pilgrimage and the fact that they were They journeyed through the wilderness as the Israelites came from Egypt into the promised land under Moses and Joshua. And what were the things that characterized that journey in the wilderness? Well, threat of annihilation, certainly. And then a glorious deliverance as God led them through the Red Sea. But then that was followed by hunger and thirst and temptations and complaining and hostility from enemy nations. Many trials and temptations. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something like our existence today in the world in which we live? James says, yes, it should sound familiar to us because that's the way it is. We too are in a wilderness. We are on a journey. We are not in our eternal home. Do you ever feel like you're far from home? We should be reminded that we are not yet home. We may feel like we're in exile, living apart from our homeland, We really are. Heaven is our home. Heaven is the promised land. I thought of um, conversations, text conversations that I have with my wife, and probably the thing that I send her most is, I'm on my way home, because I want her to know that I'm I'm headed home, and I've finally left wherever I've been. So... um, But that should remind us, even that little text, even that little phrase should remind us that we are not yet to our heavenly home. And really that idea sets a tone for the whole book because James says that we should expect trials. They're part of our existence on this journey. These trials, as painful as they are, and as much as we bristle underneath these trials and and the fact that we would not choose these trials, yet they're producing in us steadfastness, James says. God uses these trials to conform us to himself to make us holy, to make us steadfast. James knows that we, like the Israelites of old, will be tempted. That the influences of the pagan nations around them and around us will have an influence on us. We'll be tempted to conform to the ways of the world. So he calls us to be a holy people and not to succumb to the desires and the enticements of the world. We are God's people. We are dispersed in a land that is often opposed to us. And we're on a journey to our homeland. 
We have been redeemed and delivered from slavery, but we're not yet home. We're on our way. Let me ask you, do you view the Christian life as a walk in the park or as a walk through a battlefield? Is it a breeze or a battle? Now, granted, we should have times where we enjoy the blessings of God, and we should often reflect on those. And there is a joy that should characterize our lives as believers in spite of trials. And that's what we're called to do, to rejoice in the Lord. But yet, often, the world lies to us, folks, and tells us that things should be easy. But that's not what James says. He says, expect trials. They produce in you God's work. It is God working in you. One commentator has said it like this. If we were to ask James, does the road wind uphill all the way? And we could hear him reply, yes, to the very end. But on that uphill journey, James points us to Christ. James teaches us how to live, not just to react to the world, but how to follow Christ in the world. He gives us hope. Which brings us back to where we started, that James, the humble servant of Christ gives hope to the church of Christ by pointing them to the Lord Jesus Christ as they journey through the wilderness. And that's how we need to see this book, one that gives us tools and hope in Christ for our journey towards our heavenly home. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reminder in your word that we're not home yet, that we're on a journey, that we should expect trials, but you are with us and you are working in us producing steadfastness, and you are at work in the lives of your people. Lord, we pray that we would be humbled as we reflect upon the things that are ours that are not from ourselves, but are wholly and completely from you. Thank you for your word. Work it deep into our hearts. May Christ be more beautiful and the gospel more believable because we've sat under your word this morning. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.